Right, the reading is on page two of your handout. <laughs> Beginning at the top, it's from uh, Judges chapter 16, verses 23 to 31, if any of you are following in another version. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much indeed, Clive, for your warm welcome. You have a, a lovely rector, don't you? He's a great chap, uh, your esteemed rector. What a good, good thing for you to have such a good man around for such a, a good length of time. And he's doubly kind because I thought after being the first time, he wouldn't have asked me back again. <laughs> but, but there you are. It just shows how much grace there is in Basingstoke. But it's, it's lovely to see you. I really enjoyed the weekend uh, with you away and have very happy memories of that. And it's lovely to see some of you again, whom I got to know a bit over that weekend, and some others I hope to get to know a bit more this evening. Uh, well, I don't know how many of you have been to see the new James Bond movie. Yeah, well, that's, that's quite a few. It's, it's, I'm a bit of a petrol head as probably you remember if you remember uh, my comments of the weekend, but it's almost worth going to see for the car chase, isn't it? And I understand that um, they closed the center of Rome for about 12, 13 days. 800 people were involved in that. Uh, the, the Jaguar in that, the CX-75, should be made by Jaguar. It's a fantastic motor car. But it's a great chase, and I think one of the best Bond 
uh, movies for ages with improving morals. There's still some room for improvement, uh, but at least he's in love with somebody and seems to want to marry them at the end of the movie, which is uh, a bit more hopeful, and he doesn't kill the baddie when he could have. So some things are improving in the Bond movie, but uh, the car chase is terrific. Well, I want to talk to you this evening about an Old Testament James Bond, the James Bond of the Old Testament, Samson, who could be described as wine, women, and fast chariots. He was uh, a Mr. Incredible. Um, some of the feats we read about in the four chapters, and although we've had a little reading, I really want us to think overall about uh, Judges 13 to 16, which is the story of Samson. And uh, he was extraordinarily strong. I mean, one of his exploits at, at one point was to take the gates of a city, and in those days, city gates were two stories high, um, and to carry the gates of the city 38 miles and put them on the hill opposite the entrance into the city. So when the people came out in the morning, they said, where are our gates? Oh, they're over there. And there's a sort of a, a bit of humor about it, but the incredible strength, he definitely was a Mr. Incredible in terms of incredibly strong, but also with a uh, naughty sense of humor. I, <clears throat> I don't know if you have any friends who are, play pranks on you. When I was at, at school and university, there was one friend I knew, he never knew the difference between a good gag and going a bit too far. Do you know that kind of situation? And with one of his friends one morning, he decided for some reason or other they'd had a little bit of a falling out. Uh, he decided in the middle of the night to brick up the driveway of his friend's house to the feet of about four feet. So when this friend's dad woke up in the morning to get his car out, he found a wall had been built four feet across the driveway. He thought it was a huge joke. The dad did not think it funny. And um, relationships soured somewhat. Was, Samson was a bit like that. In, in, incredibly strong and a bit of a gangster, really, but never knowing quite when it had gone too far. Probably the most extraordinary thing he did was uh, capturing 300 foxes, which is not a mean feat in itself, tying their tails together, setting them on fire, and then putting them through the wheat fields. Ha, ha, ha. Destroyed the Philistines' crop in one big fell swoop. The Bible's gagster and the Bible's version of James Bond. Well... There's some things I want us to think about because extraordinarily, Samson is listed in the gallery of faith in Hebrews 11. And as we're tomorrow morning looking at uh, Hebrews 12, it's important for us to realize that Samson is there in the gallery of faith because, of faith because in the end, though it's a, a tragic story, a comic tragedy in a way, um, Nonetheless, at the end, he did show his faith in the Lord, and he did trust God, and he did look to God to accomplish that which he, he had been called to do. And so flawed though he is, 
we're meant to look back at the good side of, of Samson and see his real faith, which came through in the end, but also uh, to uh, think of the story not just in positive terms, but in negative terms, and to see how much of a flawed servant of the Lord he actually was. I want us to uh, keep in mind, and uh, perhaps if you've got a Bible with you, and it's always good to bring a Bible church, check up on the preacher, whether he's talking nonsense or otherwise. Um, I was reading through uh, Ephesians recently, and it struck me how much of a commentary um, there is in Ephesians actually on the gallery of faith in Hebrews 11, and Samson in particular. Just let me read to you two verses from Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit. I urge you to walk in a manner or live a life worthy of that to which you've been called. And verse 16, I'm reading from the ESV, uh, from verse 15, rather speaking the truth and love were to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. A life worthy of our calling and playing our part in the body of Christ. Let's think about that phrase, a life worthy of your calling. Samuel, Samuel, um, Samson had a privileged upbringing. You remember that he is one of the stories in the Bible where an angel of the Lord, which was, that phrase is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, when asked what the angel of the Lord's name was, he said, my name is Wonderful, which can only be a description of God himself. Manoah and his wife, uh, who were beyond childbearing age and unable to have children, hadn't had any children, nonetheless, like Abraham and Sarah, like Zachariah and um, his wife, uh, for John the in John the Baptist's case, here were promised a child. And in Judge's case, and in Samson's particular story, promised a child that would uh, deliver God's people um, from the oppression of the Philistines amongst whom they live. Look at chapter 13 and verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born uh, children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You remember the book of Judges is all about uh, God sent deliverers, judges. Uh, before Israel had a king, um, Israel was in the promised land, but because of, its, uh, because of Israel's disobedience to the Lord, uh, what God said would happen, happened. 
and that was the people amongst whom they lived got the upper hand and oppressed them, and they cried out to the Lord, and God sent a deliverer. There's a series of deliverers, and Samson is one of those. Samson, with a very privileged upbringing uh, from uh, a godly couple, it would seem. If you look at uh, Manoah and his wife, it seems pretty clear that she's got her head a good deal more screwed on than Manoah has, but nonetheless, uh, two believers. Uh, in fulfillment of what God promised, unusually blessed, unusually gifted, with a huge promise from uh, what God had said would happen, and in terms of his particular gifting and his privileged upbringing and his particularly miraculous birth. He had a special calling from the Lord, which was marked out by a Nazarite vow, which had three elements, only one of which Samson kept, that was not to cut his hair. The other two was not to eat food that was undefiled or to drink strong drink. But although he had a special calling from the Lord, he was a slave to his passions. Uh, despite the promising background of chapter 13, we discover in chapter 14 the beginning of a sad story. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He saw a woman who was an unbeliever, in other words. And Samson, verse the end of verse 3, said to his father, get her for me, she is right in my eyes. Samson was simply driven by his passion, and he was indeed a slave of his passion. It's very modern, isn't it? Uh, what it feels right, as somebody said to me who came to see me about a sad marriage situation uh, where he had committed adultery with somebody else's wife, and two families were in danger of imploding. And he said to me, but it feels so right. It seems so right to me. And I said, but how does it seem to God? And how does it seem to the two families that are going to be devastated? You see, Samson, just in a very modern sort of way, said, it seems right to me. And indeed, he was expressing that which was uh, true of the whole people, professing people of God in those days. Look at chapter 17 of verse 6, if you've got a Bible. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, what we see is, despite his strength, um, it's easy to confuse, isn't it, physical courage with moral courage. Uh, it seems that Samson had plenty of physical courage, but little moral courage. He was very immature and indeed perhaps spoiled by his parents, who knows. But we uh, are right as we read the story and as we think about the comment in, uh, in, in Ephesians. Was Samson living a life worthy of his calling? Some of you will know because I've told you before, but the most important conversation um, I had with anybody ever in my life was with my dad when I was seven. 
He told me the story how I wasn't meant to have lived when I was born. I was so premature in those days, two months premature. The doctor said to my dad, I'm sorry to tell you, um, your wife's life's in danger and your son is not going to make it. And my dad said, you do the best you can for my son. He's the, you're the best uh, consultant pediatrician in Dublin. Uh, we trust you do the best you can for him. And whether he lives or not is in higher hands. You do the best. I will go and pray. And he wisely only told me the story once, and he told it to me in God's providence, just the right time. And he said to me, son, you're the most prayed for little boy in Dublin. God has spared your life for a reason. Make sure you find it. And that became for me the most important conversation. That comment of my dad haunted me for years until I found the Lord, until I found the faith that he so obviously had in the Lord Jesus or to put it a better way theologically, until the Lord found me and saved me. Well, I want to ask you, as I ask myself, are we living a life worthy of our calling? Uh, one thinks about the story of Elvis Presley. I don't know many, how many of you know, uh, like his music. Actually, how many still like Elvis Presley music? Probably some, at least. But actually, his story became a tragic story, as you probably know. Uh, the whole business with his manager, the whole business in his family, the whole business with drugs and fame and unable to uh, cope with it all. And some of the final performances of Elvis were tragic. Uh, but what you may not know is that as a young man, he felt called into Christian ministry and resisted it. With the whole, uh, the whole world of Elvis, the whole life of Elvis would have been different if he'd not resisted that calling. But uh, I've been talking here particularly uh, just now about a vocational calling uh, but there is a general call upon, amongst all Christian men and women. That calling to live a life worthy of our calling, to live a life that reflects the joy of having <coughs> discovered that there is a God who loves us. There's a God who loves us so much that he sent his son at great cost to be our savior. As Paul put it, summing up, I think everything Paul believed, the Son of God, no one less, loved me and gave himself for me. And if Jesus, the Son of God, could have stayed in heaven without blame, but came to earth because even for God there was no other way that you and I might be reconciled to God, that heaven might be opened, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might discover the reason for which we've been made, that we might have a relationship with God for eternity, that we might enter his kingdom under his care and rule and guidance and love. There was no other way even for God to do that other than for the Lord Jesus to come and live among us, to share our joys and sorrows, to be our representative and substitute on Calvary's tree. In my place and in yours condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. 
And without that death, you and I could never know forgiveness. A relationship with God could never work up by religious practice or religiosity enough to gain God's standards to enter his heaven. But what we could never do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. A life worthy of our calling. The Son of God who comes in our hearts just as really as he did to the disciples of old walking along by the sea in Galilee and says, come follow me. Think back to that time in your life. I trust you're able to think. You may not be able to put a day on it, but a time on it when you began to understand who Jesus is and what he had done for you, and you felt his call upon your life, that there was only one way for you to respond, and that was say, yes, Lord, you have given me my life, and you've actually, you offer me eternal life. There's only one way for me to respond to you, to worship you and serve you from now on, to live a life from now on worthy of the calling that I've received. You've called me, and you've called me on the basis of your incredible love and grace for me on Calvary's tree, and you've called me to follow follow you, and you want me in your family. There's only one way I can live. And I, I want to ask you, brothers, this evening, a tough question, but a serious question. As I ask myself, because it's important for a preacher and hearer alike for us to ask these questions regularly in our lives, are we living a life worthy of our calling? You may have had uh, lovely Christian parents who are godly, as I was privileged to have. Have you reached your potential as their child? Have you resisted a particular vocational calling that God has called you to? But much more importantly, are you living in a way that honors the Savior who died for you? and the one who gave his life for you. You see, the problem with uh, Samson was that he was privileged to be called by God. Uh, he was gifted, as we'll see in a moment. But he didn't live in any way, in a way that was worthy of his calling. He just thought that God's grace could be presumed upon not trusted in and relied upon, but presumed upon, and that he could live any old way. It's a warning to us, the tragedy of his life and the foolishness of his life and the heartbreak, the comic heartbreak of his life is a warning to us that we need to hear what Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. And then secondly, we think about Samson's unusual gifts. The gifts that he was given, he knew something of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Uh, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him and enabled him to defeat extraordinary numbers of, uh, of Philistines. In, in fact, if we had a few Samsons today, we could just send them into Syria and sort out the mess, really. Uh, you know, Rambo had nothing on him, really. But he knew something, not only of the gifting of God, but the Spirit's presence enabling him to use his gifts. 
But the trouble with Samson was that he thought that he could just have those gifts no matter how he lived, that the presence and the power of God would be with him no matter how he behaved. I think of the comment of John Stott, I think it is. I wrote it down and I didn't put the name of the person who quoted beside it, but I think it was John Stott who said, gifts that God gives us are not toys to play with, but tools to build with. Not toys to play with, but tools to build with. And, and Samson used his particular strength, uh, often in a vindictive way, often, often just out of sheer spite or pique or a whim, and, and yet uh, his gifts were meant to be used in a way that honored God. The saddest verse is, um, comes just before the bit that was read to us this evening in Judges chapter 6 and verse 20. Do you remember Delilah teases him and says, how can you say I love you when you won't tell me what the secret of your strength is? You know the way uh, women can, um, not so good women, can on occasions wear a man down. And uh, here is Delilah wearing him down. And you think he would have learned, um, he had the same kind of experience before, you think he would have learned by this stage. And when she pressed him, uh, verse 16 says, pressed him hard with the words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. You ever been nagged and feel vexed to death? That's the way Samson felt big time. And he told her all his heart, and he said to her, Razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like other men. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, Come up again, he has told me all his heart. Then the Philistines came up and brought the money in their hands for her, and she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then he began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson simply presumed upon the Lord. And the three things that he was meant to keep as his Nazarite vow, two of them he absolutely disdained in terms of the drinking law and in terms of the defiled food, but he kept the hair issue. But when that finally went, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Brothers, can I ask you, in terms of the gifts that God has given you, maybe professional gifts, uh, maybe gifts, uh, spiritual gifts that you can use in the service of Christ in the world and in the church, uh, different, different kinds of gifts. God says that he gives to all his people in Ephesians for at least one gift. Uh, he's the, he is the the risen Lord who gives as our conquering general gives to his 
troops, his people. He gives them gifts. Read a bit more of Ephesians 4, and you'll see, you'll see that. But are we seeking to use God's gifts without a dependence upon him? It's possible for a preacher to do that. It's possible for anybody to do it. We can simply get used to doing things and think we can get away with it. I think one of the most serious conversations I had once was with a minister who came to see me, a good gospel minister, but he'd simply lost his way a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit more than a little bit. And he said to me, my preaching is uh, valued. I teach the Bible. But he said, I have no real relationship with the Lord. I simply produce sermons for other people to believe. That's a tragedy, isn't it? But you know, when we are prayerless about our own lives, or prayerful, prayerless in our church life, what we're saying more eloquently than in any other way is, Lord, I can do it without your help. You see, prayerfulness is the best expression of dependence upon God that we have. I think I may have told you the story before, but it's one of my favorites, so you'll forgive me if I tell you again. When my son was 14 and in the run-up to Christmas, he said to me, Dad, are you in a good mood? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good mood. He said, Dad, are you in a very good mood? And I said, yes, I am in a very good mood. And he said, are you in a very, very good mood? And I said, uh, yes. And he said, do you remember when we were out walking recently, we saw that trail bike in the shop window? And he said to me, uh, do you remember I admired it? And I said, yes, I do remember. You he said, I've been thinking about that, and I thought that if I, if I borrowed money from, uh, from mum and went in Stuck to mum for a while, or he said, if I saved up all my pocket money, by the time I'd saved up enough for it, I'd be too old to enjoy it. <laughs> he said, I, I, I just wouldn't be able to get there in time. And he said, Dad, I know you don't have a big income, and I know it may not be possible, but if it is possible, Dad, could I just have it for Christmas? You'd be glad to know that he did get it. But what was he doing? He was saying, he was coming to his earthly father and saying, I haven't got the resources to do this. I can't do this in my own strength. And he was coming to his father with more resources and saying, Dad, will you help me? You see, when we come to our heavenly father, isn't that what we're saying? Aren't we saying it more eloquently than any other way in prayer when we come and say, Father, I need your help to live today in a life worthy of my calling. I need your help to be the kind of dad I should be. I need your help to be the kind of husband I should be. I need your help to be the kind of workmate, um, employer or employee that you want me to be for you. I can't do it on my own. I may have the certificate on the wall, I may have the gifts you've given me, but I know I need your help to put those into practice in a way that is compelling and honorable and honoring to you. The trouble with Samson was he had the certificates on the wall of strength, but he didn't depend on the Lord for the use of the gifts that God has given him. His, his life asks us many very important questions. Are we presuming on the Lord? 
Are we just simply presuming on our skills and professionalism without dependence upon God? And then if those are our two very challenging questions, let's move on to something, um, two things that are very encouraging. Is that God uses imperfect humans and he rules and overrules their flaws and failures. See, the story of Samson tells us two things. That Samson behaved badly. And uh, because of his willful sinfulness and disregard of God's goodness to him, of not living a life worthy of his calling, he, he actually so often did the wrong thing or did the right thing in the wrong way. And yet, amazingly, God overruled his impetuosity, sometimes his motive of revenge, to actually undermine the barbarous rule of the Philistines over God's people. Isn't it fantastic for you and I to know that with our flaws too, as we bow humbly and say, Lord, help me to live in a way that's worthy of the calling with which you've called me. Help me to know my gifts and to use them in your service in dependence upon you. Thank you that we don't turn around discouraged by all that, discouraged by our flaws and failures, but know that God actually forgives and that God can use imperfect people, imperfect as we are. And actually, if he couldn't use imperfect people this side of heaven, he couldn't use any of us. Isn't it good that God could even overrule? That's what's amazing about God, isn't it? Think of the cross. When we look at the cross, what we see was, on the one hand, we see as Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, evil people put him there, evil people who were jealous, people who uh, concocted a sham trial, uh, people who were more worried about their own status and their own uh, religious practice than they were about what their religious practice was meant to point to, to honoring God and loving him and accepting his son when God sent him. Yes, uh, that was culpable and blameworthy, but actually through it all amazingly, God being God worked his purposes out of salvation and grace. Do you look back at your life and think, I've done this, that, and the other, and God could never really use me? Ask his forgiveness. Seek his cleansing. Look to him for strength to live differently and get on and do what he means you to do. Isn't it good <coughs> that God can use us <coughs> despite our flaws and failures? And then fourthly, another bit of encouragement. No one is beyond the mercy of God. I love um, this business in chapter 15. Um, Samson has defeated, struck down, verse 15, a thousand of God's enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation deliverance by the hand of your servant, 
and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it, and when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakore. By the way, if you're stuck for a name for your house that will get your neighbors talking and wondering what it's all about and give you an opportunity for witness, call your house En Hakore. Because if you've got a decent version of the Bible, the footnote will tell you it means the spring of him who called. Only two times in the whole four chapters in Samson's whole story does he pray and call upon the Lord. And on both occasions, God answers. And on both occasions, when Samson is up against it and knows he can turn nowhere else, he discovers that as he calls to God, God is a spring of water, a spring of blessing, a spring of strength and renewal that can turn even the most desert place into a place of blessing. Do you remember the other time, and I'm sure uh, you will remember it from, for it was read to us, he asked at the very end of his life to be placed so that he could put his hands on the two supporting pillars of the temple where he was. And Samson called to the Lord, verse 28, and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me once, uh, only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he'd killed during his life. Do you remember the reason for all this? God's people had cried out for deliverance. They'd been oppressed and cruelly treated by the Philistines. There needed to be a military victory, and Samson began to give that. God overruled. But it's interesting that Samson was at his most useful for God and for God's people when he cried out to God and looked to God for strength. Well, um, there is another big lesson from this whole story. Uh, it's, a, it's the story uh, not only of a flawed example of faith, but of the fact that uh, these human saviors that were sent to judge, even the kings that came later were all flawed, even the best of the kings, David, and all the stories of the Old Testament and all the experience of the people cry out, God, send us a Savior who will not be flawed and will not fail us. And of course, you will know that that was the great messianic expectation of the Old Testament and the promise of God that one day he would come personally uh, when he sent the Messiah. And uh, when this anointed king would come, he would come personally and he would establish his kingdom in a way that would never be shaken and would never end. We see the flawed deliverers of the Old Testament. 
and were pointed, aren't we, so incredibly clear, clearly to the sinlessness of our Savior Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who his disciples lived with for three years and could find no fault with him. Live in my house for 10 minutes and you'll find I'm a sinner. And I guess living in yours, I'd find out just the same thing. They lived with Jesus for three years, could find no fault in him. They saw him do things that only God could do, and they supremely understood that he came amazingly to die. That through his death and God's vindication of that in the resurrection, you and I might have life, eternal life, in God's kingdom, delivered from our sins, and enter into the longest bit of our existence, that is in eternity, with Christ. Yes, this story uh, points to us the need of a Savior. I read to you already chapter 17 and verse 6, but it's repeated in chapter 21 and verse 25, just so that the author of, the, of Judges uh, makes sure that we don't miss the point. The very last verse in the whole book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You and I need a king. We need a savior. We need a king to deliver us. We need a king to model how to live for us. We need a king to give us rules to live by, and we need his strength to help us live by them. Dear friends, uh, this is an amazing story. Uh, the Samson story is full of tough questions to ask ourselves, but also great reassurances. It's full of humor. But in the Bible, when the Bible is humorous, someone has written, in the Bible, hilarity is the servant of solemnity. And as we laugh at some of Samson's gags and we gasp at how unpolitically correct they are and how he got away with it all, nonetheless we're made to think by his story of where our priorities are and how seriously we are in our walk with God. Your king, my king, the Lord Jesus, calls us to live a life worthy of our calling. He gives us and asks us not to waste our gifts, but to use them in dependence upon him in the service of others and to the glory of Christ. He's willing to use us if we let him to be a blessing in his hands to others. Our king, in other words, wants us to walk with him, not to presume upon him, but to walk with him and to live a life that can count for eternity and be a blessing to others and bring glory to him. To walk with him and not waste our lives. It's possible, isn't it, for Christians to simply, like on a bicycle with no chain, freewheel. And God has done too much for us and given us too much for us to waste our lives. Brothers, I sat with beside the bedside of my best friend from university days, uh, from theological college days this week. Um, he went to be with the Lord on Thursday evening. 
I will miss him hugely, but as I sat by his bedside with his wife, we said to one another, how on earth do people who aren't Christians cope with the reality of death? How do they cope? It's, it seems, it would seem so hopeless. And yet there was so much hope at that bedside with all the sorrow of parting, with all the sadness, it was infused with hope and joy because of what Jesus has done for him and for us. Life hangs for all of us by a slender thread. The story of Samson simply says to us, for what time God has given us that remains, will we waste it? Or will we live for him and walk with him? And if we walk with him and depend upon him, then suddenly we'll discover over a period of time that that we are beginning to be the kind of dads or husbands or fathers that we ought to be. We're beginning to be the kind of people in the workplace that make a difference for Jesus. We're beginning to be a blessing to others. We're beginning to be a magnet for Christ, and we're beginning to be a beacon that reflects like the moon, the light of the sun. We reflecting the light of the Son of God into a lost and dark world desperately needs to know him. Brothers, we ought to be able to talk tough talk. Men ought to be able to do that. Let's not waste our lives. Let's use them for his glory. And let's not confuse physical strength with moral courage. Let's not think that gifts can be presumed upon without dependence upon God. Let's not think that life can be frittered away or that it's terminably long and we can put things right sometime down the track. Let's remember that each day could be our last and let's live it to his glory in thankfulness for all that our Savior has done for us. And that will be a life worthy of our calling. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're um, moved and challenged, uh, maybe even unsettled by the story of Samson. And yet we pray that as we need to take the warnings from the story, yet you will also help us to take the encouragements that as we turn to you and depend upon you and look to you, you can use us frail as we are. You can overrule the difficulties and the problems and the hard situations. Thank you that you have given us gifts to use. Help us to be the kind of people you want us to be and help us to be the people in your hands that become a blessing to others and that live lives that count for eternity. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Wallace. Um, there's an opportunity to ask Wallace some questions, and I'll ask young Chris here if he'd like to be the roving mic guy. It's on? Yes, it's on. And, um, but uh, before you disappear, um, I, we've got a question. I'll ask you the yeah. first question. 
inspector, Bond is asked if he wasn't an assassin in the Secret Service, what was his other career option? And he says, the priesthood. You've been a bishop, priest and deacon. Were you ever tempted for the Bond Samson lifestyle? In your younger days, of course. <laughs> Fast cars, etc. Um, I, I was um, at one stage because my uncle, who was my guardian when my dad died, um, had an auctioneering firm. And as he had no children of his own, he, he said to me, I will retire early and I'll give you the business. And um, uh, as I said, being a petrol head, he had a very nice car. And mm -hmm. I could see a big salary and um, a, a jag on the horizon. Um, but I could not run away from the calling I had as a child confirmed again and again. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody asked me when I was serving bishop, when I went, I went round all the deaneries in my area before I retired. Somebody, somebody said, if you, if you could do what you did all over again, uh, would you do it? And I, I said, if I had a thousand times to do it again, I'd do it 1100. I'd want to do it all over again. You see, um, not everybody is called to ordain ministry. Everybody is called to obey the Lord, and that may be to be a Christian doctor, solicitor, teacher, caretaker, whatever. Uh, but if we are obedient to the Lord and do the job that God has called us to do in the place he's put us in, what a blessing that can be to be. And in the, in the body of Christ, it would be pretty bad, wouldn't it, if we were all mouths, if we were all preachers. It would be pretty bad, really. It would be a deformed body. So uh, we, we need other people to do the work and be out there. Who's going to win the world? You're going to, I mean, our, our job is to encourage you to walk with Christ and to win the world. But as a friend of mine rather graphically puts it, shepherds don't win sheep. Sheep make sheep. Shepherds look after the sheep that other sheep make. Hmm. Good. Good. Well, Chris, you'll need to just traverse. Scott's got a question. So, Scott, wait, wait for him to come with the, the mic because then it gets recorded and uh, we, don't, we don't have to repeat the question. So. Um, yeah, thank you, Wallace, for your speech. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's just one thing, two things that I understand. Um, First of all, if Samson um, wanted to kill 3,000 people, would he have been punished by the Lord for that? And the, the fact that he's killing himself when the temple collapses, um, would he be forgiven for that as well? Wouldn't that be sort of a bit suicidal sort of thing for, that, for him to do that? That's just what I couldn't quite grasp. Yeah. No, that's a very, that's a very fair Thank question. You. Uh, what we need to understand is that in the Old Testament, God pictures for us in the, in the life of Israel of old some of the principles in gritty stories, some of the spiritual principles we learn in the New Testament. What we need to understand is that the Philistines were God's enemies. Um, they ruled and behaved barbarously. They originally, pro probably people think they originally came from Crete as a group of, uh, they were seafaring and wayfaring people. But there's a very interesting verse, uh, see if I can find it, um, in Genesis 15, I think it is. 
this is very important. If you don't understand this verse, you'll get misled in the whole of the Old Testament. Yeah, uh, God talks about uh, the blessing that he's going to give to Abraham and that through his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he says, uh, verse, just look, read the whole chapter sometimes, verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So uh, God gave people the land of his people, the land of Israel, but he would not do it until the behavior of the people in the land was so bad that they deserved judgment. So, you know, there's, God doesn't approve of genocide, and God, but God righteously judges and judges the nations of the earth and one day will judge everyone. Um, but God withheld the blessing of his people going into the land until actually the people in the land deserve to be kicked out. So you need to understand that the behavior of the Philistines was so bad and so oppressive and so sinful that, God, um, that the people of God cried out to God for, for deliverance and God sent uh, Samson. So in, in, in as far his motive was very bad, and no doubt as he cried to God, God would have given him forgiveness about it. But his motive was very bad. But his calling was to rid the people of the rule of the Philistines, and he did fulfill it. Um, we would hardly say, <clears throat> we need to be careful too about the difference, which is enshrined in English law between um, state morality and individual personal morality. Uh, if you have a if you have a row with your neighbor, and this comes from actually our Christian heritage, you don't, if he's put a football through your window deliberately, you don't go around and put a rugby ball through six of his windows and scrape the side of his car. You ring the police or you turn the other cheek. Um, you turn the other cheek in attitude, but it may be wise also to ring the police. But uh, when you are confronted with evil like the Nazis in World War II and being overrun by um, uh, evil regime and an evil government, it wasn't wrong for, for uh, a good folk to rise up and join the army and seek to do everything to keep them out. And, and therefore, it was not wrong of Samson to fulfill what God told him to do because God was the only judge who could do that. So I think that maybe puts things in perspective. I think maybe you had two questions, but I can't remember the other one. The fact that Samson um, has died as well, wouldn't that be sort of viewed as suicide, or is that just well, part of his, well maybe, God's plan for him? Maybe, but I think, I don't know what Clive feels about this, but I think, I think the Christian church has sometimes been unnecessarily hard about suicide. You know, I remember uh, when I was first a vicar, I remember somebody coming to me and saying, my uh, mum has committed suicide, presumably she can't be buried in the churchyard. And I said, of course she can be buried in the churchyard. I mean, 
don't we, and I saw this with my friend the other day who's got a sure hope of heaven and a joy looking forward to Christ, but we cling on to life naturally, don't we? As hard as we're able for as long as we're able. It's natural. When somebody gets so low and so ill and so confused that they're wanting to take their, their own life, wrong as it is, um, nonetheless, surely we understand that that is... is that a person has become very, very low indeed. I think that what Samson was saying, actually, God, the way I've lived, the way I've not fulfilled my calling, I deserve as much judgment as these Philistines do. Lord, help me. In the final day to fulfill my calling. So I think you need to see it like that rather than... Thank you very much, Wallace. There's a question from Graham. Yeah. So, we're all called, but how do we know exactly what our calling is? And then, when we think we know, how do we, th how do we know we've got it right? Okay. Good. There's several questions there. He's good, isn't he? He can, he can wrap up about six in one. That's cool. There's a gift, actually. You've got a gift straight away that you need to recognize. Well, uh, there's, there's two ways in which the Bible used the word calling. Calling a particular vocation to do a particular thing. When I felt called to the ministry, not that I'm comparable to Samson when he believed God was calling him to the ministry, you were called to be whatever. Um, as you prayed about what you should do with your life. But much more importantly is the, is the call of God, come follow me, so that whether I'm, whether I'm a teacher or a vicar, whether I'm a window cleaner or a world-class golfer or whatever, is that I seek to live for Jesus in that profession. I've come, I think, and I'd love, love to hear uh, my esteemed brother John's comments on this. I've come to believe that God is interested when I was a young man, I used to think God is mostly interested whether I'm in Dublin or London or Manchester. God, I think God is, is interested where we are, you know, so that we pray about moves and we ask him to help guide us and lead us. But actually, I've come to see and believe that God is more interested in what we do, whether we're in London, Manchester or Dublin, than whether we are in London, Manchester. What he wants us to be is wherever we are to be for him. And of course he will, as we ask him, um, he will help us think through some situation. And there are some things that can be confusing. I would say have good Christian friends, have a home group leader or a pastor whom you could say, you know me now quite well, what do you think my gifts are? And that might surprise you. And then, you know, a conversation with a trusted Christian friend might be, um, you know, somebody might say, well, actually, you're obviously a very good teacher. I've seen you at work in a home Bible study group. Or you're very good at hospitality. You make people feel very much at home. You should be involved in hospitality in the church, in the life of the church, or whatever it might be. Ask, pray, pray a lot, and ask trusted friends. But above all, listen to the Word of God, because the Word of God doesn't give us a specific verse on the vocational issues. It couldn't possibly, 
you know, should I be in Dublin or London? Hezekiah 95.6 doesn't exist. It's not there in the Bible. But what should I be like in London or Dublin? The Bible's full of it. So let's follow that. And actually, if you want to know where to begin, get the clue from what I said this evening, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is, is saying, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is what God has done for you. Now, in the light of what God has done for you, 4, 5, and 6, live it out. Another question? I've got a couple. Um, when you were with us um, at the men's weekend, Wallace, you, uh, you, you told us, you, you were telling us about a, um, a book you were writing on Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. Mm -hmm. how's, how's that got on? Thank you. You're very kind. Keep praying. I've <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've honestly been too busy this this uh, this year. I've, I've um, my wife says I should try retiring again. <laughs> I don't I don't really uh, believe in retiring. I believe in sort of changing from Pirelli to Goodyear and keep going. That's the best retiring. Um, I I've retired from. I, I've gotten rid of the admin of the job I had, but. God called me to preach the gospel and teach the Bible, and I won't give up doing that till I drop. Uh, but um, we, we probably, uh, my wife is probably right when uh, she says to me, you need to learn to say no to some more things. I tend to say yes. Uh, not always um, as wisely. I, I need sometimes to get a better, better balance, and I need more space. Uh, the next couple of months, I would value prayers because I have tracked on quite, with a, quite a lot of material. I've got all the material to write the final draft of the Nehemiah and Esther bit. And I've got half of the material in Ezra. It's just a question of getting the final drafts down. So over the next three months, I hope to get that two of them done. So please uh, pray on. So, so it might be a Christmas present for uh, 2016 Possibly. Hopefully. Possibly. And, and Hopefully. the other question that I'm sure they want to know, we, 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 um, we showed um, the Irish Rugby Union advert for their participation in the World Rugby World Cup. And you pop up in a green shirt in... in what's that? How did yeah, you get into that? Yeah, I a fat lot of good it did us. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did I come to be involved in that? Well, um, I'm a long-term Leinster and Irish rugby supporter. It, I come from Dublin, as you know. Um, my wife's English. My kids were born here. And in, in our house, um, we cheer for England for everything but rugby. And I managed to blackmail the rest of the family to cheer for Ireland. Um, but um, just for rugby. Um, when Ireland's not playing England, we cheer for England, but um, there we are. Um, my son works for Pentland, who are the owning company of a number of brands. Uh, he's a graphic designer. And um, Pentland own... Uh, thank you very much. 
Berghaus, uh, Ted Baker, Speedo, Canterbury, all that sort of thing. And he's, he's a mad uh, Leinster fan. He's, he's a great, much more of a Leinster fan than I am. And he said to me, Dad, they want to, we, Canterbury, he said, and I've got to do the advert for it, uh, uh, we look after all the rugby stuff for England and for Ireland, not for Wales and Scotland, but for England and Ireland. And he said, um, they're asking me to write up something from an Irish supporter's point of view. And he said, will, will you just write something down for me? He said, as a long-term supporter. And I wrote something out, you know, that I was, I was born in 1947. Ireland won the Grand Slam in 48, and they didn't win it again until 2009. And I just wanted them to do it once before I died. And, you know, I just talked about being a couple of paragraphs. And, and Pentland liked it, and they said, we're going to get a supporter from each of the four provinces of Ireland. He, unknown to me, he put it in. And we're going to get somebody from the four provinces to come as a committed. So there'll be four people committed supporters of the Irish rugby team from the four provinces of Ireland, Ulster, Munster, Leinster, and Connacht, and then four of the Irish rugby team. And then he said to me one day, will you come and film? For us. And uh, I thought it might be a bit of fun, so I said, well, okay, if, are you sure? Uh, why, won't, why wouldn't you do it? Because you're better looking than me and you're younger. And he said, no, they want somebody who's been a long-term supporter. <laughs> of, um, and so it, there was a really funny thing about it, because, uh, because Canterbury had, a, if you've got a, an English rugby shirt, you will see they've done a beautiful job in, in what looks like embroidery but it's in kind of rubberized thing on the shield, the rugby shields and they they didn't want the opposition nike or any of the other firms to know about it so i had to sign a contract which i wasn't paid for by the way but i had to sign a contract for one day to be a model <laughs> <laughs> so, there, so there's, there's a, on there's my a, cv one day one day in my life i've been a model shows how hard up they were but uh, it, it, was, it was great fun, and I had to hang around for an afternoon and uh, just have about 100 different shots, of which they pick about four or five. So that's how that ended. So up. there you are. You heard it here. The only bishop of the Church of England, probably, who's had a modelling contract. <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, oh, they shut the door. <laughs>